0: Welcome to Amped Up. This is your host, Ryan Knight, and our guest today is Shahid Buttar, who is running for Congress to replace Nancy Pelosi in California's 12th District. Uh, Shahid, welcome to Amped Up.
1: I'm so stoked to be here. Thanks for having me, Ryan.
0: Yeah, uh, since this is your first time uh, on the podcast, why don't you give our listeners a little bit about your backstory and uh, why you're running for Congress?
1: Sure. I'm an immigrant to the United States. I was born in the U.K., Uh, My family is originally from Pakistan, I grew up in rural Missouri, and had a chance to uh, spend 10 years in Chicago going to night school, while working full time to get my undergrad degree. Uh, That gave me a chance to come out to San Francisco 20 years ago, and uh, ever since then, I've been fighting across the country at the vanguard of the progressive left to advance policies from marriage equality for same sex couples, campaign finance reform, peace and justice, human rights and particularly limits on government surveillance. That's been one of the focuses of my work over the last decade. And I'm running for Congress. This is my second run. In 2018, I challenged Nancy Pelosi for her seat representing San Francisco and Washington. Uh, I got as many votes as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did in our respective primaries that cycle. And I'm back this year to finish the job. We've uh, won the jungle primary alongside Pelosi two months ago. So that makes me the first Democrat to ever have the chance to confront Pelosi in a November election. And with the support of the 30,000 San Franciscans who just voted for us, the many more who will be getting votes from in the next several months, the now 21,000 Americans around the country supporting our campaign and the thousands of volunteers. I'm looking forward to liberating the seat and getting San Francisco a voice in Congress who will stand for our city and our mm-hmm. principles instead of Wall Street.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's so remarkable to me that you are the first real challenger uh, of, you know, that Speaker Pelosi has had in over 30 years because, you know, here we, you know, here the party calls itself the Democratic Party, Hmm. (laughs) but that's not very democratic to me Um, that, you know, people just think that, that votes are owed to them and they act like these seats are entitled to them. And how dare, you know, I got a lot of pressure and pushback when I supported your campaign from people. Uh, someone went as, so far as to call me a traitor. Wow. Okay. No joke. Uh, yeah. and, and I was sitting there like, well, I thought, uh, you know, in this thing called democracy, mm-hmm. we get to pick who we want to represent us. Right. You know, it, it, it's all starting to feel a little bit more like a monarchy. Like we, like these politicians become like, you know, these kings and queens and everyone just worships at them and doesn't challenge them and doesn't demand better from, from them. And here we are in this moment of deep injustice and inequality. Yes. And we need people who are going to fight for the people and people like you who will challenge power. Um, my Can I question, say two things
1: on there really quick? Just yeah, please, please. That you rift on. You know, one, this idea of like uh, who is the traitor, I just want to like particularly draw out the principle of the Democratic Party having been taken from its mm. roots. You know, we're a party that has long been rooted in working class needs. and And it was taken from that vision by FDR by corporate Democrats in the 90s, you know, and, there was, right. and, and the idea of FDR's party having become Wall Street's party, while the grand old party, which, you know, before the 1968 switch was the party of, of racial equality is now the fascist party. And we, the people of the United States are left with a choice between fascists and Wall Street. And that's the right. choice we're presented. And we're told that's democracy. That's one dimension. There's a whole other way to look at this, which is that Nancy Pelosi leads a branch of Congress which is constitutionally charged to fight the executive branch. There's supposed to be an adversarial relationship between the branches to protect us, the people, from the government. And she's been an executive maximalist for decades. Torture, surveillance, paramilitarized policing, the mass incarceration regime. There has never been an authoritarian program that Nancy Pelosi has not supported. And the idea that anybody calls her liberal, I find, frankly, something between offensive and, you know, reflective of ignorance, because there's nothing about her that is anything remotely liberal. She's an authoritarian commanding the Democratic Party. And I think of that in the context of a criminal president and aspiring tyrant as a threat to the republic equal to that presented by the GOP.
0: That's absolutely right. You know, one thing I I always tell people is we don't have a major left party in the United States. Right. We we have two right wing parties. You know, the Democratic Party is a center right party, mm-hmm. and the and the Republican Party is a far right party. And you know, it's so interesting when you talk about the police state and the and the and the military stuff because all that stuff you said is true, but yet Democratic voters and our part in the party we accuse that stuff of of Republicans, yep. but then we excuse it when our own party does it. Well, like
1: some people excuse Pelosi
0: it. <laughs> just voted to increase his police powers, right. voted for his military budget, you know? So it's like, we're doing the same things or Democrats are doing the same things that they're accusing Republicans of.
1: That's exactly right. And the voters don't need to take it. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the chance to be an agent of accountability for the party mm-hmm. to be held true to its principles and we, the voters. Yeah.
0: Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing Americans protest in every state against uh, the murder of George Floyd, and centuries of racial injustice. And it's truly been remarkable to see um, just to see people crying out for systemic change. uh, And they're crying out to defund the police. Yet the Democratic establishment is totally ignoring their calls and trying to peddle more incremental reforms. Mm -hmm. What is your reaction to the protests we're seeing? And, And as bad as Trump is, Is this moment also exposing how out of touch the Democratic Party is, since they are still resisting the fundamental changes we need?
1: Absolutely exposing the failures of the Democratic Party. And just to answer the first part of your question, I am so proud of America in the last two weeks for standing up in the face of this, not just standing up for the rights of our neighbors and declaring that Black Lives Matter, but being unintimidated by military shows of force. I mean, it's, it's not just a commitment to each other and the mutual love that draws our communities to come together, mind you, in the middle of a pandemic that puts us all at risk in doing it, right? right. We're willing to confront risks for each other. And that's a thing I don't know if I've ever seen that in the United States, right? When we've had movements in the past, it's been people who might have an insight into a set of problems. Maybe it's people who've experienced some intersection from those problems in their own lives or their own families. But rarely have we seen... Masses of people in the United States willingly confronting risks to vicariously support the rights of their neighbors and and to see a criminal president attempt you know I, the, even the mainstream press responding to the protests in response has generally not <clears throat> made explicit that there was an attempted authoritarian coup in the United States last week when the president tried to deploy the military domestically to suppress dissent <clears throat> that is a coup attempt. And frankly, the only thing that saved us, it wasn't the Democratic Party. It wasn't Congress. It certainly was not our right wing courts. It was retired military generals who refused to go along and repudiated Trump on national television. Another way to think about that is that our democracy hangs by a thread. And the only thing, frankly, that is forcing uh, the vestiges of our democracy to remain in place in the face of this ongoing assault by our criminal president and his congressional enablers, including Nancy Pelosi, is the widespread pervasive resistance, real resistance with a capital R backed with action by we the people of the United States. And we're coming from every race, every age, every gender expression, every orientation, every corner of the country. And it's incredible to me to see we the American people declare and demonstrate our sovereignty. Uh, I feel like we are witnessing a, a democratic revolution under our feet to hold our own government true to the words to which we long ago committed on paper. And I'm excited to see that. I'm 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 very grateful to everybody who's been a part of all of the actions and uh, just props to you know to any of your listeners who've been on the streets, props, stay at it. To anybody who hasn't, you know, it's never too late. You know, you, you yep. can support us from an armchair and that's great. And we appreciate the tweets, but like action is where the action is at. And to yep. anybody who's feeling one, you know, a different riff on this, a lot of people right now are struggling with disillusion or despair or just concern about a future that seems frankly, really dark between the climate catastrophe, the pandemic, potential authoritarianism, rising fascism. I mean, there's a lot of real concerns to be had. And if you're concerned about the future, there are two antidotes to despair that I can offer. One of them is community and the other one is action. And when you remix them, that's how we get the democratic revolution. That's how we actually fix the problem is remixing our antidotes to our individual despair can build a collective liberation. And I'm excited to be a part of that.
0: Yeah, that's well said. And I'm, I'm glad you encourage people to get out there. You know, I've been out there myself and it is so invigorating to see people standing up and fighting for justice yeah. and fighting for justice for black lives, fighting for justice for their neighbors lives, you know, fighting for justice for the poor and the marginalized. And though, you know, those who've been left behind, you know, one thing I think is so interesting, though, is our history has been so whitewashed because when, When some of the more, you know, when the when the rioting started and and some of the more violent protests started, you know, you hear these talking pundits on uh, CNN say like, oh, MLK was about peaceful protests and the civil rights was peaceful. And it's like, uh, no, it wasn't. There were times where where in our past, in our history, where our government our oppressive government has left people no choice but to stand up and fight for their basic human rights and this is what happens when we live in an oppressive government because like i I, as an lgbtq person stonewall was the first was a riot right (laughs) speak it brother marsha p johnson threw a brick so it wasn't peaceful sometimes we have to come together and fight and do whatever it takes if our government isn't going to give us basic human rights and so one of the things that i think. Why we are going to start to maybe see some change and a a revolution brewing is the people are waking up and realizing how how oppressive our government really is, how corrupt our government really is, how during this pandemic they've been helping corporations while people have been left to fend for themselves and, and are now, you know face the threat of of eviction. So I just, I think this moment is starting to wake people up to see the power that we have when we come together and we fight back. And yes, some of it might not be peaceful. And guess what? Look at history. That's okay. The civil rights movement wasn't all peaceful and neither was the gay rights movement.
1: Fascinating reflections here. And so many things I want to say on this. You know, one, the distinction between peacefulness, nonviolence and property destruction. I want to unpack those three things because they get inflated Mm -hmm. a lot and there's vast distinctions between them. I've seen a lot of violence at protests recently, and it's always been committed by police. Violence is when people get hurt. That's a big difference from when property gets taken or destroyed. And when we talk about looting or property destruction in the last two weeks, if we zoom back and consider, you know, also into history. The history here suggests that if, if there's been any looting or theft, it hasn't been in the last two weeks. The theft was for 500 years from an entire race of people who remain officially marginalized that's right and and to for you know i hear the concern about uh you know vivid demonstrations of of anger and the fact is that when you press people to the wall and you deny them the most basic dignity even the right to simply make it home safe without being murdered arbitrarily by people who we collectively employ to keep us safe when you deny people even their most basic rights there frankly i think at some point we have to expect the dissent to escalate and that's not you know i'm not endorsing any particular action i'm very committed to nonviolence. um that notwithstanding just as a prediction people denied rights will react period right and and we should we should not only expect that but i would like us not to press people into that position you mentioned that you know we've left people no choice in our nation's past but to stand up we've left people dead in their beds That's what we did to Fred Hampton. I mean, the violence in our nation's history and the suppression of dissent, we've seen some militarized suppression of dissent recently. It gets a lot worse than this. And it could get a lot worse than this. This is particularly why I have fought surveillance for the last decade. I recognize the threat of fascism in the United States since 2000. I was studying law at Stanford when the Bush versus Gore decision happened. And I saw that as a constitutional coup. And I have witnessed a Supreme Court illegitimately constituted for the last 20 years, along with right wing presidencies. And a corrupt and complicit Congress advance any number of restrictions on individual rights, this defining cornerstones of authoritarianism: restricting voting rights, uh, blocking the borders, militarizing the borders, and our city paramilitary domestic occupations, torture, surveillance, profiling, arbitrary police murders, unaccountability. I mean, we are talking about if we if we shed the rhetoric that we are spoon fed, and we actually observe the United States in 2020 to describe this country as a democracy requires a tremendous flight of fancy and the facts suggest very a very different picture that i think we are now to your point people are recognizing because the reality of authoritarianism is authoritarianism in the united states has revealed itself and eclipsed finally the rhetoric of democracy that's always hidden behind right we've always had the militarized yep. suppression of dissent we've always had racial oppression And, you know, one of the things I give thanks about the internet for is the fact that, you know, as much as I would rather have the lives of George Floyd and Sandra Bland and Tamir Rice and Mario Woods and Alex Nieto and Oscar Grant and Philando Castile and Eric Garner and say too many of their names when we say their names, right? It is just a too long. Yep.
0: And Taylor. It's just,
1: we shouldn't, we shouldn't be in this position. And and the fact that we are and the fact that the Internet is bringing the vivid imagery of our losses of these people's lives and their dreams and their our possibilities, I think, is forcing us to recognize in the same way that the embedded journalism in Vietnam brought the conflict home and exposed the lies of the officials. We've been spoon fed lies by our officials, Republicans and Democrats for too damn long. And again, I'm proud of the American people for saying enough is enough.
0: Yeah, that's well said. I also think the point on, on democracy is, is well taken. Like, this is not a democracy, right? Democracy people. We don't. people. I don't see any representation of the people. I see a Congress and a president who represents the ruling class and mm-hmm. giant corporations. So this idea that, like, we need to save our democracy. <laughs> no, we need to dismantle the plutocracy. Mm-hmm. There's no democracy left to save here. And and, and, and dismantling the plutocracy, we can actually build a social democracy we can build a real government that actually that doesn't provide corporate welfare but provides human welfare yeah. and actually you know provides citizens health care instead of dropping bombs all over the world right I mean we are so far from democracy right now that I think that when you hear Democrats say oh we need to save our democracy hmm. from Trump like no our democracy is already dead and, and you're one of the people that right I, I Because our campaign because you sold out to corporations and billionaires and you put corporate greed, over human yes.
1: dignity. In, in context after context, that's the story of healthcare. That's the story of fossil fuel extraction, the climate catastrophe. That's the story of our wars for profit abroad. That's the story of our private prison complex. That's the story of immigration enforcement using immigrants as punching bags to, to mainstream authoritarian powers that Americans would never accept if there were transparent debates. That's the story of the surveillance state, which is one giant pork barrel project to hurl money at corporate contractors. It's the story of every major public policy paradigm. Agricultural policy fits this model. You know, ag subsidies to big companies that marginalize family farms. We have a government for, of, and by capital. That's what we have. That's what capitalism means. Capitalism is incompatible with democracy because democracy relies on a political equality that especially runaway crony corporate capitalism systematically undermines by entrenching and creating vast inequality. I mean, we have people, mm. Jeff Bezos makes more money in an hour than most Americans would see over many lifetimes, right? right. While on any major US city, there are thousands of people sleeping outside without shelter in the cold. I mean, what kind of a society are we that we allow that kind of maldistribution of resources? It, is, it honestly turns my stomach. It's why I'm running for office, because I can't bear to watch this from a time Yeah. On. Well, and I, I,
0: how, do you, how do you even defend capitalism or say that capitalism is working for the majority of the people when Jeff Bezos is set to become the, the world's first trillionaire? Yeah. And you've got 140 million Americans who are either poor or low income. And we have 78 percent of our country is living paycheck to paycheck. Uh-huh. I mean, the, the inequalities just aren't adding up. You know, like this is not the American dream. You know, this is not what we're told when we're a kid. If you work hard, you can get ahead. That is not happening for millions of Americans. And in fact, a lot of Americans who work really hard are end up in poverty. And it's not because they didn't they didn't. You know, it's not because the 1% works right. harder than the 99%. Right. It's because the system is rigged against the 99%. And the, and the system is rigged to prop up the 1%.
1: And, the, and that rigging is a result of public policy choices. You know, there is a, dem, there's a, right. a widespread narrative, a myth, if you will, that, you know, you sort of alluded to it, that, that rich people deserve their wealth and poor people chose to be there or made mistakes or did something wrong. You know, the, the leading cause of homelessness in the United States is medical bankruptcy. And that is a phenomenon that in any other industrialized country just does not exist if you go to any other country that is industrialized and you say we in the united states force sick people to sleep in the street because we deny them health care as a matter of right we take all their money and when they run out we kick them into the street what they might say is that they, <laughs> One reaction might be, "Wow, that is barbaric," and that would be ignorant too, because Northern European pre-industrial tribes actually were nicer to each other and took care of each other better than we do today. Which is to say, it's not even barbaric. And I find it so preposterous that that Americans have allowed this to happen. You know, we sing anthems at baseball games about living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. We are neither of those things. We live in a land of the police state and a home
0: of the prison slaves. That's what we live by, right. and and we're living under corporate and plutonic rule. Mm-hmm. Like we're literally living under the rule of these these billionaires that literally control and own us. Like there's no liberty in mm-hmm. that. And what frustrates me is, you know, when you talk about you know me- people go homeless because of medical debt. We could end that right now if our politicians just had the courage to fight for Medicare for all instead of fighting for the giant insurance corporations. So you are right. This is a matter of policy, but it's also a matter of the American people have to wake up and stop voting for these corporate-backed politicians. There comes a point where, like, I don't care. I get it. CNN is corporate media and MSNBC is corporate media. I mean, I I literally see them just like Fox News kind of indoctrinates Mm -hmm. the right. I think that CNN and MSNBC indoctrinates no liberals question. and indoctrinates centrists Absolutely. because it gives them this view that like everything is working okay. And the truth is, couldn't, that couldn't be further from the truth. Our, our policing system is racist. Our, our political system is corrupt. Our economic system is rigged. Our healthcare system is broken. And our government is controlled by corporations. And rather than replace these harmful systems with better ones, Corrupt politicians peddle reforms that don't upset the status quo because the status quo makes their corporate donors a lot of money. So how do we break out of this cycle? Because I'll tell you what, revolution is looking like the answer to Mm me right now, like a good answer, because we we got to break this cycle of having these politicians who just continue the status quo, and they continue to enable all these broken systems that are harming people to stay in place. Absolutely. And
1: I think a revolution is frankly, to some extent under a foot, Uh, it's, it's a foot, it's happening. Bernie describes his presidential campaign in explicitly those terms. It was, it was a revolution that was ours that we shared. And while in the presidential race, we, the people were denied, frankly, the opportunity to support a nominee allied with the future. And I, you know, I, I have very little, uh, uh, reason for any degree of hope or excitement about the presidential race, and you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to fighting the winner of it from the left, whoever it is, when I get to Washington.
0: Yes, I, I, if Joe Biden ends up winning, the real the real resistance, like you said, with a capital R, will yep. begin. <laughs>
1: yep, I mean, if he if he had over the course of his career done anything to address these concerns that we're raising here, I would feel differently. Except he is absolutely. Part of the problem. And I don't want to go like super hard on this, but there's a point that I haven't heard made much. So like, it's just worth throwing out here. Every one of our last several presidents has presented themselves to the American people as an outsider. George W. Bush was the son of a president who had led the CIA, so anything but an outsider. But he presented himself as a small-town guy from Texas, right? Barack Obama was a U.S. senator, so also not an insider, but a recent U.S. senator, and you know, at least could plausibly claim to have come from outside Washington. Donald Trump is an oligarch billionaire, oligarch billionaire, so also not an outsider, but claimed, again, to be there to drain the swamp because he hadn't served in government before. And who did Democrats nominate in 2020? The most conservative voice from a field of 20 people who is the most entrenched, quintessential creature of Washington, who the American people have repeatedly said over the last 20 years we are not interested in. And it's like ducking into a punch. This is what Democrats do. They duck into punches because, you know, you might, say, you might ask, <clears throat> are they there just to facilitate the interests of their corporate donors? And that would be yes. And that's charitable. There, there's, there's a competing narrative that's even worse, which is that are they actively complicit with the GOP and the fascist right wing? And to the extent you have the same Wall Street uh, patrons driving both parties, whether Democrats are willingly that or unwittingly that, in either case, that's basically what they've been reduced to. And, you know, you asked, how do we stop this? One thing we can do very concretely is remove Mitch McConnell and replace him with Charles Booker and remove Nancy Pelosi and re- replace her with me. And I'm not going to be the Speaker of the House. I'll be a freshman junior member of Congress, but just getting the gavel out of her hands is probably yep. the most important thing we could do in this November election. More important frankly, than yep, anything, any other election as far as I'm concerned. It's why I'm running for this seat, because I see how crucial she is as an enabling agent of authoritarianism, fascism, and Trump's corruption.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And, um, you know, you can look at there is approval ratings out in the past week. I wrote this down because it's it's truly shows where our country is. Uh, Medicare for all now has a 70 percent wow. approval rating. The Black Lives Matter protests have a 64 percent approval rating. Burning down a police station has a 54 <laughs> percent. Heard that rating. Yet. Wow. And Joe Biden has a 46 percent approval rating and Donald Trump has a 42 percent approval rating. So when burning down a police station is more popular (laughs) than both candidates for president, it it seems like people are finally waking up to the harsh reality of of the corrupt duopoly we're living under. You know, as you kind of alluded to earlier, Bernie and the progressive movement fought like hell for a peaceful political revolution the past two election cycles. While moderates rejected it and thumbed their noses at it, yet it seems now like revolution is inevitable as people are struggling to survive under this oppressive government. Do you see a a revolution coming and, and and, and, and as part of that revolution, harnessing the energy that Bernie started and using it? to elect democratic socialists and real progressives like yourself across yes, the country?
1: Yes, absolutely. Again, I think we're living through it in, in real time. I'll, I'll depict it in a different space. I mean, yes, I, I absolutely think it entails that electoral shift, and I am committed to it being a peaceful democratic revolution that we can use our existing democratic processes to effectuate. And yesterday, I was in a, uh, a protest in the Bayview. It's one of our last remaining African-American enclaves in San Francisco, and in this p- march, there might've been four or 500 people. And we go from the Bayview Opera House to the uh, police department, the station at Mission Rock. And there was this moment where a bunch of people sort of like crowded up really close to the police line of riot cops. And they start chanting, you're about to lose your job. You're about to lose your job. <laughs> and the 16-year-olds, there's a bunch of youth, Black youth from the neighborhood who'd organized the protest, And they were amazing. I mean, they, they, they organized sound trucks. We basically danced the whole way to the police station. And you know, a very young woman under the age of 18 on the microphone basically is like, hey, y'all, that ain't it. We're not here for that. We're here to love each other and uplift our stories. And they basically pulled everybody back from the line, had them sit down, and we watched a per- set of performances that were incredible. And, and to see that leadership of youth hold accountable, not just our leaders, but our neighbors to ensure that this revolution is one that is rooted in love and not anger, and one that is that is rooted in peace, not. I want to, again, distinguish peacefulness and nonviolence, one that is rooted in nonviolence, even if it disrupts the peace, right? We say no justice, no peace. We mean not to be peaceful. We are nonviolent, but we are absolutely there to declare our presence and to disrupt the normal order of things. That is the point, because the normal order of things is unacceptable. That's the difference between dissent and resistance. And I'm very acquainted with that because my earliest political acts were resistance. I, I shut down a Lockheed Martin plant in Santa Clara, uh, California in 2003 with 5,000 people. I was part of the siege of San Francisco to try to stop Bush's corporate invasion of Iraq. I was one of the early courtroom advocates to establish marriage equality for same-sex couples when Speaker Pelosi and the corporate Democratic Party could not be bothered to support the rights of my gay neighbors. And I did that as a cis-hetero Muslim lawyer from the Midwest because rights are intersectional. And that, frankly, is kind of obvious to anybody who pays half a lick of attention, right? I mean, this is the importance of Observing politics, not just through news and not just through books also, but by observing it and being present in communities, because the intersectionality of marginalization is obvious to anyone who's ever organized. It might not be obvious to people whose pathway to politics lies through study, like academic study or journalistic study, but observation will reveal a great many things that reporting does not. And, and that's been among them. It's, it's why I have fought for rights in all the different contexts I have. Uh, and it's, it's why I'm running for Congress again, because I do see that revolution that you're asking about is as one that is within reach. And I see it demonstrated. You know, when you look at those numbers that you read, Medicare for all polling at 70 percent, contrast that. And yeah. it is a bipartisan majority. A majority of Republicans support it. And just to be clear, it's the closest thing to a no brainer you could imagine. Not only does every industrialized country in the world already have it, but we are living through a contagious pandemic that has already killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. We've lost more American lives in the last three months than it took us 19 years to send into a meat grinder in Vietnam. And the idea that we're just like still blindly stumbling down the road of for-profit predatory healthcare is, it's absurd, frankly, and it's entirely unacceptable. It is as vivid a demonstration of the failure of the corporate establishment as any I could imagine or contrive. I mean, reality is, Stranger than fiction. And you know, yeah. if, if, if somebody presented me a fiction of the United States at the moment, I would find it hard to believe. But and, you know, that is the reality that we are unfortunately living through. And the fact that even Democrats won't show up for the policy pro- supported by not only a majority of Democrats, but a majority of Republicans that would prevent homelessness, keep people alive, help address the pandemic, reduce healthcare costs, improve healthcare outcomes, help millions of Americans sleep at night, The fact that they're willing to do none of those things in order to preserve their access to the corporate trough of donors from their pharmaceutical and health insurance patrons, it's disqualifying as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, no, and it just shows how broken everything is. One thing that popped in my head that was when you were talking about the the fight for gay marriage, what's so interesting to me is. Now the democratic establishment like pretends like they supported it from the beginning when they didn't, right? And so I I like to remind people that like fighting for transformational change and fighting for revolutionary change is always seen as divisive until that change happens and it transforms our country for the better. And so right now while I, I see this as a revolution for racial and economic justice, those are the two things that we just don't have in America. We do not have racial justice and we do not have economic justice. And I see this is and what's interesting is I see this fight when you talk about it being multiracial and you're seeing everyone represented. It's almost like a, it's like a culmination. First, you know, we had the women's suffrage movement to give women the right to vote. Then we mm-hmm. had the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, then we had the, the movement for marriage equality. We're almost seeing like a combination of all three of the biggest social movements ever. And now we're finally asking for racial justice and for economic justice. So people can actually live and thrive in a nation that claims to be the, the, the wealthiest nation on earth. Yet we can't afford <laughs> universal health care, universal public college, universal child care. You know, it just doesn't add up. And so that's where I see this as kind of like a we're all in this yeah. fight now together. Until we can have justice for all of our people, we won't have any justice. Yeah, and
1: Dr. King time. gave it to us in just those terms, right? He said that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And he also told us other things just to remix this, you know, to bringing him to mind also uh, makes me think of his warning about the intersecting evils of racism, militarism and capitalism, mm-hmm. which also maps very neatly to the to the intersectional revolution you're describing, because it's almost like now. Many, many years after he was taken from us, we are finally starting to heed his words that the generation that yeah. lived through his loss, unfortunately, uh, wasn't willing to heed his voice. And now he's been you know, sort of canonized to some extent, neutralized in the same way, frankly, that you were describing the gay rights movement, which was very radical and not embraced at all by Democrats. I want to just pause there for a minute. The Castro here in San Francisco is uh, the highest um, rate. it it has the highest turnout in elections of any neighborhood in the city. And it also is the neighborhood that in the densest concentration voted for Nancy Pelosi in the primary that I just won alongside her two months ago. And it is, you know, I, I need to make this point really explicit because frankly, Pelosi stays in office because residents of the Castro, in the same way that residents of Kansas vote for Republicans, they vote against their interests. And, you know, it's, it is...
0: And they vote against. I mean, I, I, I went to undergrad at Santa Clara, so I, I became a gay man in the Castro. I would sneak. Right I on. was in a fraternity, and I would sneak up to San Francisco on the weekends, and this is where I went to my first. I game have a month. Day, and so a DJ in the Castro they're not. Right, they're voting against our own. History. Do you ever go to
1: Lookout by any chance? <laughs> That's my. I, I did. I went yeah. well before the pandemic. I played a, a monthly house set there every uh, third Wednesday. Oh, third Thursday. Sorry, but.
0: That's so, yeah,
1: tell me about tell me about your time in the Castro. I'm fascinated.
0: No, I just I mean, that's where I became a gay man. And that's where I learned to accept myself. And they, you know, they taught me that, you know, I grew up in a Catholic family. And so I was I I was ashamed of who I was. And, uh, you know, my mom and dad were my dad was a was a football player. My mother was literally a cheerleader. They met in high school. And so when they found out I was gay, the first thing my mom said is, I can't believe Mickey Knight would ever have a gay kid. Every girl in high school wanted to have sex with your father so oh, brother i'm I so message, sorry you went heard, through oh, that shit, like it's all over like it doesn't matter who i bring home yeah. it won't be good enough right so i went through that whole crisis but san francisco healed me the castro healed me right, and on. they healed me because they believed in justice and they believed in dignity so to hear that people in the castro are, are almost voting against the history of our movement and the history of Of what it takes to have justice in this country you know we got to work on this i appreciate
1: that i mean and i appreciate your story of the city too i mean it's fascinating to hear the way that especially the way you said the castro healed you i mean i have a similar experience of san francisco from a different kind of trajectory you know i came here as you know again an immigrant who and, and and in muslim uh culture my gender expression doesn't map neatly to established norms right um, um, but all that notwithstanding, when I came to San Francisco, I saw people accept everybody. You know, That's what I love about this place. It's right. why I'm so in love with San Francisco and have been for 20 years. And it's not just about orientation. It's not just about gender. It's not just about ideology or how you dress or where you come from. It's like everybody has always been welcome here. From its earliest days, this has been a city of outcasts and people who have who have fled other places in order to reclaim our lives. It's been... The proud countercultural capital of our country for over 150 years, and I, I very much am committed to that as well. You know, I feel like as a an immigrant DJ, constitutional lawyer, direct action advocate, policy advocate, you know, I kind of feel like to some extent, I I don't want to say embody because that's aggrandizing and presumptuous, but I do think I reflect the culture of our city as well as its sensibility. You know,
0: beyond the ideas. Absolutely. Well, and it's a city that's always pushed America forward. You know, it did that during haight Ashbury and during the '70s, and and during that counterculture era. It, you know, it did that during the gay rights movement. And it's a city that, that. But I also think it's 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 been changing because you have the whole Silicon Valley, you know, the whole mm-hmm. technological mm-hmm. revolution thing happening. So you've seen a lot of. You know, I I know a lot of friends. You know, what I lived up in the city for for two years. I lived in San Francisco before okay, moving man. down here to LA, and the apartment my first apartment in san francisco i think it was like two thousand dollars a month it now costs someone told me like this was like last year but it's like five thousand dollars a month for for a one bedroom i mean those that so so a lot of the people that were you know the the counterculture people they get pushed out of the city by some of by capitalism right and by all the people now that want to live in the city so i think we're seeing a lot of that shift but i think people need to know like it's not always for the better you know like that's why we need balance that's why We've got way too much capitalism and we need a lot more socialism to balance it out because Mm -hmm. there's no balance right now. And we're seeing the effects of that with all of the injustice that happens when you just live in a capitalistic society that has no social safety. One of the
1: particular uh, dynamics you mentioned there was displacement. And just to to touch on that, because it also touches on the policing crisis that we're living under two nights ago, maybe three nights ago, the SF Police Commission had a hearing on a great many things, including uh, some uh, proposed budget amendments. And the hearing went till 3 o'clock in the morning because so many people were lined up for public comment. And it was a virtual hearing, so we were just on the phone calling in uh, basically to this like live stream. But you know, so I gave my comment I think at like 2.30 in the morning. And one of the things I said was that in the 20 years that I've been here, I have seen the racial composition of our city shift. It's literally not the same city that it was when I moved here 20 years ago, precisely because. The absurd costs of living here, particularly housing costs, have forced out many people in our community. You, you sort of mentioned the countercultural folks, the revolutionaries, the artists, and huge swaths of the communities of color that used to constitute the city. And you know, that is a reflection. Policing is a part of that as well. Housing is a part of that, just to independently address them. We've talked about policing on housing. It would be very different, I think, the affordable housing crisis around the country, if the leader of the Democratic Party was not a wealthy landlord, probably inclined to protect her own class interests. I'm a renter. You you. Know, I live in Haight-Ashbury. You mentioned that neighborhood. I live basically like, at that epicenter. And I'm, I'm both subject to the same economic pressures that other people are in a way that she, as a, you know, someone worth uh, over $100 million, is not. And it's interesting to see these similarities. I see so many similarities between her and Trump, like, you know, both born with silver spoons in their mouths, powerful East Coast families, both massive commercial landlords, both, you know, leaders inclined to theater over actual governance. And, you know, they seem to be working, you know, if it is hand in hand, it's in secret, but they certainly are, you know, there's a ruse. And I I don't want to say it's a conspiracy in the sense of like a secret agreement. I'll just say that it's, it's a tacit, um, uh, arrangement that we see demonstrated every day where he does crazy things she says strong words about his crazy things in order to raise money for her party which then votes for his policies and the rest of us are left standing around being like well what was all that about why did we work so hard to capture the house if you're just yeah. going to support his corporate trade policy his immigration policy his military budget his fiscal austerity rules uh i mean I, So many things here. And as long as I'm just, I I reffed on this before, but I just wanna name it explicitly. She also funded his concentration camps. And as an immigrant, and this city isn't sanctuary city. Like how can San Francisco be committed to immigrant rights and still send someone like her to Washington? And the only way that can happen is if San Francisco doesn't know who we're voting for. And this is worth noting, in 30 years, Nancy Pelosi has never publicly defended her record once. She hasn't ever debated an opponent, ever. And I am the first Democrat to ever challenge her in a November election, which is to say, I'm looking very forward to asking her the hard questions that reporters don't. And I'm looking forward to some reporter, some journalist. I would love for some journalist somewhere to, to invite that debate because she won't respond to my invitations. But I think it's a lot harder for her to turn down an invitation from the San Francisco Chronicle or KQED uh, or you know, NBC or ABC or somebody like that. And I've, I'm, if, if San Francisco has a chance to hear the choice and understand the difference, you know, which is to say, if she doesn't have a chance to rely on corporate news propaganda to construct a false image of her inconsistent with her voting record, I'm I'm very confident that San Francisco will make a, a different choice. And again, I'm, I am um, I I wish I'm, I'm babbling here, but I wish that she showed up differently. No, please, like if she can. showed up differently, I, I could be living my life. You know, I loved working at EFF and DJing once a month and going to festivals. Like that was a great life. You know, I could write about issues in digital rights and Emerging issues in the internet that concerned me. I got to fight police departments around the country, you know, play my music. That was a great life. And I basically gave it up to, to, to liberate this seat in Congress and go into Washington to, to fight authoritarianism because I know how much more important that is. And I somebody has to do it. And she's not. And no one else either would or could challenge her. And, you know, I care too much about the future to sit on my hands watching it slip down the drain.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. I have little sections for the podcast and we've, you're, so, you're so easy to talk to. We've, just, we've covered so much, but one of my sections is Nancy Pelosi. Um, but there's some, you know, my biggest gripe with Pelosi and yeah. Biden and Schumer for that matter is that they do not represent the left. They're center-right politicians who put corporations over people and then use the far-right GOP mm-hmm. as cover for their complicity. Uh, the problem, uh, her, her resistance to Trump is always performative. It's nothing but lip service and sternly worded letters. And then Pelosi turns around and votes for Trump's military budget, as you said, and, and to give him more police powers. So we know how Pelosi deals with the far right GOP. How would Shahid deal with the far right GOP when he votes yeah, Pelosi? I,
1: I very boldly reframe these issues, and I'm not going to vote for their policies, first of all. I'm certainly not going to whip votes for their policies. Right. In itself, would it be a big win. Um, and I'll, I'll take this further. Like, I will show up in the districts of other republicans or democrats who stand against issues like medicare for all and the green new deal and i will support primary challengers to incumbent democrats and i will certainly support democratic challengers to unhelpful republicans yeah exactly well, you mean you right? Right. and i'll show up in the community <laughs> just like i always have been you know i've the i'm i'm running for congress as an extension of my long-standing direct action organizing and policy advocacy and community organizing you know, i'm I'm, I, I'm not changing my stripes here. Uh, and, and the biggest difference between me and the centrist Democrats and how we engage the right wing is that the centrist Democrats enable them and I will actually be going to fight them.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's well said. Um, well, and I also think that's kind of how we got here is, you know, Donald Trump and the GOP, they unapologetically yep. fight for their fascist agenda, whereas the Democratic Party is scared and mm-hmm. hesitant and runs away from the progressive agenda. So what ends up happening is we just keep shifting further and further to the right. And if we actually want to heal America, then we have to move back to the left. That's where justice is. That's where equality is. And and, and I think because of the corporate media, so many people think that Pelosi and Schumer and Biden are, represent the left or are progressive. There is nothing progressive about them. Maybe you could argue that on a few social issues they are, but they're not progressive on economic issues they're not and 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 when there's this much inequality if you're not progressive on economic issues then you're not progressive because the economic issues are affecting our social issues as well well yes and on the social
1: issues when they do show up they have to get dragged i mean we talked about this before marriage equality gay rights were they there no we had to drag them policing were they there They they showed up in congress kneeling wearing Traditional African garb reserved for royalty, which is like triply offensive because it's culturally appropriating and it's collapsing that like anti-nobility clause in the Constitution. And it's pandering what they supported basically this week was reforms that the Movement for Black Lives and Civil Rights Movement was proposing 20 years ago. And another way of putting your dynamic about, you know, the Democrats playing on the wrong team is that when anything like the left wins, we win small. And when the right wing wins, they win big. So they win things like the Patriot Act. They win things like, uh, you know, a tax break for forty-three thousand millionaires. It gives them one point six million dollars each in the middle of a coronavirus stimulus package, hurling more money in, corp- in tax breaks to millionaires than we invested in hospitals. Right? That's the kind of losses we have by the right. And because Democrats don't actually fight for progressive principles, when they score anything that looks like I'm using air quotes here a win, it's not actually a win. It's just it's just window dressing. And and just like the policing reforms that Pelosi backed this week. Now, some of them I want to be in the interest of fairness. Some of them were meaningful, but they still were just like 10 years late. So, for instance, she finally backed a registry yeah. for violent police, which I proposed many years ago. The Movement for Black Lives has been demanding for almost half a decade. Um, she finally embraced... Calls for data collection about the racial impacts of stops, arrests, and uses of force. That was almost adopted by Congress in 2001 with the support of the Bush administration. So for Pelosi mm-hmm. to show up in 2020, you know, wear, waving her kente cloth, being like, you know, I'm woke now, it's like, I'm over. That's ridiculous. And <laughs> it's a half assed set of reforms that don't address the central demand of our communities, which is to defund the police in order to reinvest in alternatives to incarceration, right?
0: right and i no, think please. it's a, i also think not to cut you off but i think that there's such a yeah. lack of imagination in our country and a lack of understanding that like it's right. not like we won't have public safety there'll still be someone to show up when you call 911 but they're not going to be there showing up and, and putting their knee on right. a black man's neck right. for 9 minutes and killing him right so it's a matter of getting rid of funding these these militarized police forces putting more money in housing putting more money in rehabilitation for you know addiction and and and, and alcoholism totally. putting more money into mental health so then you you reduce mm-hmm. the need for a lot of the policing policing shouldn't show up for for homeless people because we shouldn't have homeless people. Policing shouldn't show up for drug, drug addicts and alcoholics because we shouldn't have this many drug, drug addicts and alcoholics because we should have more rehabs. rehab. So it's all just a matter of moving money from oppressive systems yes. to moving money to healing systems. The problem is the propaganda of the right wing media and of our right wing Democratic Party. They hear defund the police, right. and then they don't tell right. people what that. I, mean, I I love
1: the way you describe oppressive versus healing systems. That's a really neat schema. And, uh, it's elegant, and and the particularly the way I think about this is we should be investing in health, in social workers, and healthcare instead of guns and police. It's just that simple. Yes. And there's any number of people with the right training to actually be helpful interveners in situations where people need help, but all too often police aren't. It, it, it's worth noting here also <laughs> the two different intersections with respect to the inability of police to actually meet the social needs that we currently task them to address. Uh, They get forced, police get forced to deal with issues that only social workers are prepared and equipped to solve. And because of that, that's one of the reasons that we're in this problem, because we we have a set of responses that don't match the need. And, And one of the reasons they don't match the need is because there is a lot, unfortunately, uh, of profit in policing. We have allowed policing, just like international security and the Pentagon to be infected with the profit motive. Yeah, yep.
0: and, and same with mass incarceration. You know, one of the things I, I said to someone the other day, as a nation, when our government spends $182 billion a year on policing and mass incarceration, that leads to an overwhelming disproportionate amount, amount of black and brown people to be locked up. That means our nation wants black and brown people to be locked up if they're spending a hundred Well, and with good reason, and I mean it's not it.
1: a it's not a reason that we should accept, but like economically it makes perfect sense because in prison, what do they get? Slave labor. Slavery remains legal in the United States. Many people don't realize that, but the text of the Thirteenth Amendment adopted after the Civil War explicitly allows the preservation of savory, slavery as a condition of punishment. That's another reason why mass incarceration exists. You could think of it as an economic system. And I, this is going to sound horrifying. And it's true. And I apologize to anybody who's never heard this before, but the United States has always embraced slave labor, still, even continuing today. And we have to look at mass incarceration through that lens. The only difference between slave labor today and before is that it's nominally less racialized now because there are white slaves too. And I, you know, I don't know if that makes it any Better like it's really you know it's, you can't really weigh these things. The point is we have to dismantle these systems and slavery once and for all, not yes. just as a system of forced servitude, uh, you know, uh, marginalizing and oppressing an entire race of people, but even as a system of penalty and a penal system that replicates slavery is not an improvement on it. <laughs> we we. Have-
0: Right. It just, I just, it doesn't make, it, it's not acceptable that we spend $100 Absolutely. billion dollars a year on locking people up. Like, it's just not, not acceptable, especially when the majority of them are, are a lot of them are nonviolent and they're alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, crimes related to alcoholism and drug addiction. Or property, crime. get rehabilitation property for, crimes. Which shouldn't happen if we just, if we just we distributed We're our property. resources. Right. Totally. So it's just, that's to me, it's, it's about shifting resources, but we don't have public officials who have the you know we have officials who want to put resources into systems that help the, the for-profit prison and that want to help wall street and we need politicians who want to put money into systems that help the people yep. you know that to me is what we're missing um there's a quote uh that i love that's been going around and it, it says the old world needs to yeah. die so the new world can be born And you know, Trump to me is using these protests to keep things from changing. Yeah. Right. He wants to preserve the old world. You know, he falsely called the the brave protesters who liberated Seattle and and built the autonomous where they're having music festivals and they're having, you know, they're playing music out there and there's no police. And you know, it's like a fun music festival. And Trump labeled them domestic terrorists, right? Just to you know, because that's what he wants to do. He's using these protests, not to move us forward, but to keep us back, right? He wants to protect the old world, which I would call the white supremacist plutocracy. Whereas the Democrats are scared to fight for the new world, which I would call a social democracy where everybody has health care and economic equality. They are completely ignoring activist calls for defunding the police, as we talked about earlier, and systemic change. So we're kind of caught in this horrible in-between where Republicans are fighting unapologetically mm-hmm. to keep the decaying old world alive, but Democrats don't have the courage to fight. Uh, the it, new you're world. absolutely They're right. And it, another
1: uh, similar quote that comes to mind is the opportunity to build the new in the shell of the old. And that this takes us back to the beginning of our conversation. That's why I'm mm-hmm. so proud of our people. That's what we are doing. That's what the protests are. That's what our movements are. Right. That's what everybody who around the country who picked up the phone to make calls for Bernie Sanders. You're a part of it. Everybody who... Uh, You know, even if you haven't yet been in the streets alongside us, if you've just been concerned, you're part of that movement and that this is a movement of people uh, that is that is declaring uh, our unwillingness to accept that sordid, sorry state of affairs any longer. And we are claiming that new future. We are building the new in the shell of the old to fight for that future to fight for a paradigm that will replace human dignity and the preservation, not just of individual human lives. You know, we're talking about policing at the moment and, and, and we need to stop police murders of innocent people, period. But also, I mean, like the, the grand future, like the preservation of our species. And here I'm thinking about like the Green New Deal in the face of the climate catastrophe. There's, you know, there's parallels between the micro right. and the macro in the same way that our individual rights and the Bill of Rights yep. protect our democracy for our country. Similarly, we see these problems replicated at different scales. Um, the very same uh for-profit prison industry that we see domestically maps very neatly to the for-profit military contracting industrial resource extraction complex that around the world has been abusing human rights to facilitate the climate chaos uh you know we, we these uh, replications of dynamics across local and international contexts is, is a piece i'm also very aware of and concerned by and i i think that you're right that we We need to fight for the future. We are
0: fighting for the future. The future is within reach. That's very well said. The future is definitely within reach, but we have to fight for it. And this is our moment to fight for it. There's no going back. We need to move this country forward. So I I just wanna thank you, Shahid, for your fight and for running for Congress and running against the most powerful Democrat in the country and doing it with courage and integrity and moral clarity, and most of all, doing it by fighting for the progressive policies that will lift up not only your community in San Francisco, but lift up our country. Uh, So this has been such an enlightening conversation today. And I also, I wanna wanna encourage all of my listeners and followers to go to shahidforchange.us, chip in 10 bucks, chip in 20 bucks, and sign up to phone bank. Phone banking is an excellent way to get involved in the movement for change in this country. Uh, and so also Shahid, how can people follow you on social media?
1: Uh, we're also on all of the major social media networks, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube at Shahid for change. We have a super active phone banking program. We've got almost a thousand people trained on our system. We have uh, trainings every other day online, field staff of over half a dozen people, including several people we recruited from Bernie 2020, training volunteers and working with them. We'd love to include any of your listeners. And I just want to say, man, I'm so glad to connect with you. I really appreciated your voice, and this has been a, a fun hour
0: to spend with you. Well, that was amazing, and that was officially our longest podcast because Shahid is amazing, and I could have listened to him and spoken with him all day long. Um, again, if you uh, if you can, please, please go to ShahidForChange U.S., chip in five bucks, chip in 10 bucks, chip in 20 bucks. Uh, And if you can't chip in, uh, or chip in and sign up uh, to phone bank for an hour a week, or you can text bank, that is how we are going to beat Nancy Pelosi in November and take back the corporate wing of the Democratic Party uh, so it will represent the people again and bring it back to its grassroots. Uh, That's how we do it, we do it with people power. That is how we beat politicians who have been bought off by these large corporations and represent their interests interests instead of our interests. So please, please, once again, go to shahidforchange.us, chip in. And finally, I also want to thank our Patreon subscribers who allow me to bring this podcast to you every week. Uh, their gener- their generous donations keep me afloat. So I want to thank Alexandra Orso, Alan Wood, Ari Slater, Colin Bowden, Efraim Borakis, Eileen O'Farrell, Elizabeth Kim, Insurgent, John Lloyd IV, Mary Fancher, Matthew Hahn, Michael Hardy, Molly Secors, Patti Clary, Ruben Sanchez Jr., Russell Whitworth, Shauna Pearson, Trent Tobler, and Walter Hackett. Thank you guys so much for your donations. Uh, They allow me to bring this podcast to you. And if you want to to, uh, become a subscriber, a monthly Patreon subscriber to the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash proud socialist, or you can support the podcast on Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash amped up. Thank you again for listening to an all new episode of Amped Up with Ryan Knight. And I will be with you next week with another uh, down ballot progressive who is running for office to take our democracy back. Thank you.